We'll hear argument first this morning in number 92-1956, uh, Consolidated Rail Corporation against uh, Gotsall and Carlisle. Uh, Mr. Wellington. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. These two consolidated cases from the Third Circuit arise from different factual circumstances but present a single fundamental issue from their holdings. Do railroads have a broad duty under the Federal Employers' Liability Act to protect their employees from all genuine and foreseeable emotional harm, even in the absence of physical impact or a reasonable fear of physical impact? This court in 1987, in its decision in the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe versus Buell case, discussed but did not decide whether claims for emotional injury were cognizable under the FELA. And since that time, federal and state courts around the country have wrestled with that fundamental question and with the legal principles to be applied in answering it. Although different analyses have been applied by different courts, most, indeed all so far until the Third Circuit, have recognized the need to have reasonable limits on recovery for such claims of emotional distress. Only the Third Circuit in the decisions below has expressly rejected the experience of the common law and the limited tests of duty developed at common law with respect to emotional harm. And in its Gottschall decision, the court determined that the duty of railroads under the FELA, and I quote only a phrase from the appendix, page 52 of the uh, writ, to, appendix to the writ of certiorari, the, they held that the duty under the FELA, quote, includes a duty to guard against conditions in the workplace that cause emotional harm to employees, end quote. This duty was then applied in the Carlisle decision to hold for the first time that railroads can be subjected to damages under the FELA for general workplace stress. We believe those decisions to be error. At the outset, I wish to make Conrail's position on the issue clear. We do not dispute that under some circumstances, the FELA may provide recovery for some claims of emotional distress. In short, we do not argue that the word injury in the statute precludes recovery for all emotional harm. Rather, we believe the critical inquiry is whether negligence in the statute imposes a general duty to guard against conditions in the workplace that cause emotional harm. Since there was no independent duty for jet to, at common law at the time the FELA was enacted to avoid negligent infliction of emotional distress, and since there is no evidence that Congress intended to include in the FELA a duty under negligence that was not included at common law at the time, we believe that no such general duty exists and should not be imposed by the courts. So you think the duty to guard against uh, emotional injury is a more limited one than the duty imposed by the act to guard against physical injury? Yes, Your Honor, we do. If, if one looks at if this court recently in Morgan Manesson, um, observed, it's important to look at the historical context of the FELA and the legislative history at the time. And at the time the FELA was enacted in 1908, there was no general duty at common law to avoid the negligent infliction of emotional distress. Indeed, there is no such general duty today. What the common law has done in the last 80 years or so is carve out certain limited exceptions defined by zone of danger test, bystander test, that permits some limited recovery under some circumstances. And we believe that one begins with looking at the statute and its historical context, that you cannot assume that Congress in 1908 included, uh, intended to impose a duty on the railroads that was not then recognized at common law, and indeed... Well, is it possible, though, that... Uh 
the common law can change over time and that a duty uh, could evolve and that uh, perhaps the act is broad enough to encompass those changing notions. Absolutely. At least there's some suggestion to that effect, I think, in, in some of this court's language. Absolutely, Justice O'Connor, that's correct. And we recognize that this court has interpreted the, the statute as evolving with common law, but within the statutory framework originally enacted, um, for example, in the URI decision where this court Realize, um, held that injury in the statute includes injury over time from a deleterious substance, not just an impact injury. Um, that's, I think, an appropriate um, development with common law. But in Morgan, as the court indicated, and as we believe here, where there was no, in fact, where the statute could not have included the duty at the outset, and Congress has chosen not to include it through the next 80 years or so, we think it's inappropriate to include a new duty. The Third Circuit's test, in fact, goes beyond, Your Honor, anything that the common law generally recognizes. What we are suggesting is that the appropriate test does reflect this um, a response to the remedial purposes of the FELA. And that's the zone of danger test that the common law has wrestled with over several decades. And at the same time, in that test, it does permit recovery for certain plaintiffs under certain circumstances who have sustained an emotional injury. But that these, uh, these particular plaintiffs uh, present rather appealing cases, don't they? I think that the facts, uh, Justice Blackman, are compelling, particularly, let's say, in the Gottschall case. They are dramatized because of the heart attack of a co-worker. The difficulty, I think, with, with the Third Circuit's opinion is that in dramatizing those facts, and they are sympathetic. I don't take issue with the sympathy of the facts, particularly in the Gottschall case. Of course, always dramatized facts. <laughs> um, in, in, in reaching to, reco- to permit Mr. Gottschall to recover, they have established a rule of law that has a pernicious potential application in other cases. And the real problem is exhibited by its application in Carlisle. And it is this general duty that they've assumed that the railroads now have under the FELA. Once you apply the duty, take the duty from the facts of Carlisle, excuse me, Gottschall, and apply it to a Carlisle case where you immediately have a finding that the duty includes a general duty to avoid emotional harm in the workplace, you now have the kind of unlimited liability that has never been recognized. Well, under, under your zone of danger test, is there a tribal issue of fact in Gottschall? Um, I, I do not believe there is, Justice Kennedy. Uh, the district court, in, in fact, in Godshaw, in, a, in reviewing the summary judgment, um, analyzed Mr. Godshaw's claim on a traditional zone of danger analysis, and it determined that he was not within a zone of danger. In fact, in the Third Circuit, as the record reflects, Mr. Gottschall argued that the zone of danger was the inappropriate test to analyze his claim because he recognizes he's not within the zone of danger. And the Third Circuit did the analysis on the common law bystander test, which some courts recognize. If he had been rushing to help the victim and broken his arm, I assume that he would have been covered because of the rescue doctrine? An interesting question. Perhaps he would have suffered if... Yes, he, he may have, Your Honor. He may have suffered, if that physical injury is a direct result of the negligence of the railroad, 
And it may be under the law based upon the res rescue doctrine. Well, if, if the stress were related to his rescue activities, uh, then it seems to me the same result might follow. If his stress was related... The difficulty I have, Your Honor, is that we have to... I think it's appropriate or important to have a legal analysis that really can be applied by the courts in these claims. Um, no one has analyzed Mr. Gottschall's claim on, on the rescue doctrine to date. That's for, um, either the district court or the Third Circuit. And the Third Circuit's principles are that once you can foresee that someone will be distressed, that person can recover. The, so, the Mr. Wellington, on, in describing the standard for the Third Circuit, whether it's correct or not, I'm not clear on whether you are taking the position that the FELA is frozen in a certain time or whether this statute, which uses the word injury, uses the word negligence, whether this is a charter to the court to use the same kind of dynamic interpretation in developing common law concepts so that uh, with respect to this act, the federal courts would be in the same position that state courts are and state courts over time have changed the common law with respect to emotional distress. Is, is, are the federal courts in the same position vis-a-vis -vis the FELA or is there something different? Your Honor, they are within the same position but only within the confines of what Congress intended within the original statute. And to that extent, the, the federal courts, in interpreting or expanding the FELA, are somewhat constrained by the original intent of Congress and the legislative history that reflects that intent. And well, so is, is the original intent of Congress anything, or anything more definite, at least, than the removal of certain defenses, uh, so as to open up this kind of litigation? For example, I mean, it removed the fellow servant uh, defense. Uh, where, what can you point to in the intent of Congress that, in effect, precludes this court or the federal courts from any exercise of, of originality in developing a theory of liability? Um, what, we, what we need to look to, Justice Souter, is what the common law of negligence was at the time Congress enacted it. And as well, you say, Congress... We need to look to, but my question was, what is there either in the statute... Uh, or, or in legislative history that you can specifically point to that requires us to do that? Um, it requires us to, to not include emotional injuries? It requires us to, uh, to forswear originality. I do not believe the court needs to forswear originality, and we're not arguing that, Your Honor. What we are arguing is that, yes, the common law, excuse, yes, the statute does evolve within the common law or gleaming guidance from the common law, as this court has observed. But... The problem with the Third Circuit decision is twofold. It has gone beyond what is generally accepted at common law to begin with. Well, that, with. in effect, it seems to me you're saying the Third Circuit was guilty of some originality. Uh, it was supposed to take some sort of a common law census uh, and determine the common law limit and say we cannot go one inch beyond that. That's what you're saying, isn't it? It is not just the common law limit, Your Honor. What we, what we believe is instructive about the common law experience is that the courts in decades at the common law have dealt with these claims and have realized the pitfalls of going to a general foreseeability standard. So it's important to look at that experience. Well, what, if, what if the federal courts look at it and say the, the state courts are too timid? 
Um, that that's, that's depending on the common law experience. It is presumably learning something from it and saying the lesson is that we should do a better job. We are also constrained, I believe, Your Honor, by looking at the statute itself, though. And that's, I know, was Your Honor's original question. In, when, when it was enacted, Congress, as Your Honor pointed out, knew how to change elements of the common law if it chose. And indeed, it, it, at initial enactment, made three modifications and 40 years later made another modification by statute to change basic negligence principles that had been enacted in the statute. But at the time this statute was enacted, and indeed today, as, I, as I've mentioned, there is at the common law no general duty to protect against emotional harm. For that duty to have, for us to assume that in 1908 Congress intended that duty without having reflected that in statute itself when it, the duty didn't exist at common law or without there being any legislative history that reflects that emotional injuries of this nature were to be covered, I think is, in, is inappropriate. And we're going back to the question that, that I asked and I think you're giving a different answer now. Um, I thought that this statute, this General Liability Act was meant to be um, guidance for the federal courts to interpret the law of railroad worker liability in the way that the highest court of a state would interpret a general liability statute. And I asked you if there's any constraint based on the date of this act or did Congress mean the federal courts to be as dynamic as a state court would be, so that then the question becomes, what is a sensible position for the highest court of a common law jurisdiction to take? And I, I still haven't got a clear fix, because you seem to be backtracking now on whether you're saying, the Third Circuit didn't take a sensible position for a common law court dealing with concepts of negligence and injury to be taking, or there are additional constraints that the FELA places on the federal courts that would not be placed on, say, the courts of Pennsylvania in determining the extent of liability for infliction of emotional distress. Ryan, what I am saying and our position is that both of those things are true. There are additional restraints that the common law courts would not have because of the historical context, and we need to look at what Congress intended and the fact that it's not amended the statute since that time. The second issue that we are proposing is exactly as Your Honor suggested. Apart from that legislative constraint to begin with, the, the test that they adopted is not a rational, reasonable, or workable test. And we can look at the experience of the common law in order to come to that conclusion. So I am, we are suggesting that both of those things are what is wrong with the Third Circuit's approach. By adopting a general foreseeability statute standard that they now apply to, uh, uh, to the railroads, a number of claims that have already been dealt with in the, uh, by the circuit courts around the country um, now become, now pose situations of potential plaintiffs. It is foreseeable, it's a given that it is foreseeable on the railroad or any other industry that certain working conditions will cause people stress. Um, already, this, um, the Sixth Circuit has dealt with a, a claim of a discipline, of a person who claims emotional harm from discipline decisions against him. The Fifth Circuit has dealt with emotional claims arising from witnessing an accident to someone else. The Th Sixth Circuit's also dealt with emotional claims from people not liking the way a supervisor has uh, treated them. 
And we've had several... Mr. Wellington, I take it, uh, I'm going back to the facts of these cases, I take it you're not disputing the facts of these cases, such as uh, Conrail's disciplining um, Mr. Gottschall for administering CPR. I don't believe, Your Honor, that Mr. Gasho was disciplined for that. I believe what the record says is that a supervisor the following day, I think, it said, uh, verbally reprimanded him for doing that. I don't believe he was disciplined, Your Honor. Well, uh, I do not back. Is there a difference between uh, criticism and reprimand by a supervisor? Let us assume that there is not, Your Honor. The, que the legal question becomes, is that damage-provoking conduct? I know what the legal question is, but what I want to know is whether you concede these facts I, stated. For purposes of these arguments, Your Honor, we concede these facts. We do indeed. The foreseeability um, standard that we're most concerned about is by a, the, the cases I just mentioned that the circuit courts have dealt with, those plaintiffs now become damaged plaintiffs because if their emotional distress was genuine, it's clearly foreseeable in those circumstances that people will be, will be upset by management decisions. They are now state a recoverable claim with the Third Circuit. The next point that I would like to address is the difficulty with Mr. Carlisle's claim and Mr. Gottschall's claim himself, themselves. Assuming the facts to be exactly as they are in the record, Mr. Gottschall... How would it be otherwise? The, Mr. Gottschall's facts are on a summary judgment basis, and I'm assuming... Yes, we are speaking of the other one, though. Mr. Carlisle? Yes. They are as they are in the record, Your Honor. So you don't have to assume. With the facts that we have before the court, Mr. Gottschall does not, under any common law analysis, state a recoverable claim. The district court so found that and the Third Circuit, indeed, in analyzing Mr. Gottschall's claim under the generally accepted standards, found that he did not have a claim. Can I go back to a question Justice Kennedy asked you earlier and just change the facts slightly? If Mr. Gottschall had been 50 years old with a heart condition, would he have been in the zone of danger? Your Honor, no. Does the, does the zone of danger then have to be created by um, an, an independent third party? Zone of danger... Independent of the employer? Zone of danger under common law analysis is the immediate threat of a physical impact, uh, an impact of the immediate threat of a physical impact. It's, it's simply, the, the answer is it cannot result from a, uh, an existing condition of the employee uh, without the impingement of some uh, external force? Yes, it cannot result from a working condition, whether that working condition be heat, cold, heavy lifting, work, stress, because the result is if the plaintiff is permitted to recover not because he's been injured by that condition, but because he's, he's uncomfortable or afraid or concerned about working in that condition, you now open up as potential plaintiffs under the standard anyone who is, counters a working condition, uh, um, a supervisor, um, a strenuous activity, hours, they become damaged plaintiffs under the FELA even before they've had an injury. So I don't believe under any circumstance a working condition can be a physical impact. Mr. Wellington, why do you, why do you pick that as, as the criterion? I mean, there are a lot of other tests that could be applied. For example, uh, why shouldn't we adopt uh, the rule that uh, you can uh, uh, recover for emotional injury only if it manifests itself in some physical disability? Uh, you, you sort of reject that. Why, why is that? Because um, 
you don't need it to win your case. It, it seems to me you've, you've, you've picked among the available uh, common law choices that various states have used the most permissive one that will yet enable you to win your case. Uh, I don't know that that's the way we ought to decide this matter. There are many more restrictive uh, views. Uh, why shouldn't we consider some of those? Uh, there are three, three answers, Your Honor. The, uh, the, the physical manifestation test that Your Honor just mentioned, for example, is not really a test under the common law, even though the Third Circuit sort of mentioned it as such. Mm -hmm. Physical manifestation, every claim for emotional harm has an allegation of physical manifestation. You cannot work, develop a workable legal, legal principle on whether or not a plaintiff says, I have insomnia or a headache. Even in the Buell case, this court had, there was gastritis. Mr. Carlisle, although his claim is really emotional distress, had, had sleeplessness. Mr. Gottschall had some physical manifestation. Every claim has one. And at the common law, that is essentially not a test. What it is, is what the common law requires that manifestation as a showing of the genuineness of the injury, which is part of the injury proof of it. Secondly, so you, you, you say that test does apply, or doesn't? I believe it's, it's a threshold. I believe it's an element of a plaintiff's proof, even under a zone of danger test, Your Honor. Secondly, but that the plaintiff met it here. Yes, Your Honor. They both had physical manifestations. Under a zone of danger test. Do, do they get recovery for the physical manifestations only, or do they get recovery for the? They get recovery for the physical manifestations if they meet. No, I understand. But in addition to that, do they, do they get recovery for the emotional injury that caused the physical manifestation? If, if they were, had a cognizable cause of action. And, and why not give them recovery only for the physical manifestations, for the physical injury that they've suffered? If, even if that physical injury is caused... By an, emotional, by an emotional harm? Immediate emotional injury, which produces a physical injury. It, 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 it's the same... What, what's wrong with, with doing that? What's wrong with doing that is, I think, the same problem we have with the decisions, is that you open up people who have not, in fact, been physically injured, and the way the statute was originally intended to apply, to, to saying, I, nonetheless, because I'm upset with my supervisor, I can't sleep, and I've lost 10 pounds, I have a damage claim for that. You still expand the basic liability well, because the... Excuse me, Chief Justice. Well, when you're calculating damages, the damages are awarded for the physical manifestations, really. Are they not? Not, not for the, what is claimed to be the underlying emotional upset. Not on these claims, Your Honor. Uh, and Justice Scalia's uh, hypothetical to me as why not argue that. I understand that's what he was suggesting. But not on these claims. These claims go to the jury for emotion, what is the emotional impact and the physical, what is the emotional harm and how much should they recover. In addition, they're permitted to show damages as well or give damages as well for the physical injuries that have become manifest. Our concern is we just don't believe you can develop, establish a workable principle of law on the amount of physical manifestation a plaintiff alleges coming with emotional harm because they all allege some physical There's manifestation. There's a different test and perhaps that's what is floating around here. That is, if you have a physical, if there's a physical impact, then you can recover for both emotional and um, other kinds of injuries. But that, that the impact has to be physical, which is different from saying that there are inevitably physical manifestations of emotional distress. Yes, Your Honor, what you've described is a basic negligence action where someone is hurt, and we have no contest with that. 
if Mr. If Mr. Jones, take, take out the drama for a moment of the gotcha of the heart attack, and assume that Mr. Jones had been uh, working lifting these rails and had hurt his back lifting the rails instead of had a heart attack, Mr. Jones would have had presumably if he could establish the negligence of the railroad in, in having him do this work, he would have a recovery for the physical injury itself, an impact. This, what Mr. Gottschall is now saying is, because I saw Mr. Johns hurt, um, I am afraid that I don't want to do that heavy labor, and I don't want to, uh, and there, I have an emotional harm that I will be uh, hurt if I have to do that. We believe that's where the line should be drawn. If I might, Your Honor, I'd like to reserve uh, my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Wellington. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Myers, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the issue before this Court today is whether the Court is going to carve out an emotional injury exception to the FELA. It is the respondent's position that it should not, first of all, because to do so, this Court would have to essentially rewrite the FELA, and secondly, because there is simply no need to do so. This court has already construed the FELA as a dynamic statute that is meant to include causes of action um, and specific injuries and specific classes of employees that may not have been originally contemplated by Congress. Why is that? I mean, it is rather extraordinary. I'm I'm not used to being a common law judge. I usually have a statute in front of me, and I give it the meaning it had when it was enacted. Indeed, uh, uh, some of my colleagues uh, look to the committee reports and the legislative history to see what Congress thought the meaning was at the time it was enacted, and if that's what they thought, that meaning doesn't change, even if in light of you know, uh, uh, better knowledge, we, uh, it, it would better have a, a different meaning. What is different about FELA that, that converts us into common law courts? Uh, the, this court found in Kernan, for example, Kernan versus American Dredging, that Congress itself did not want the FELA to be limited to the specific types of injuries or the specific class of employees. Is that in the statute? That's not in the statute, and, and that's, and that's uh, actually part of our position. Congress deliberately worded this statute in broad language. It set up uh, a flexible scheme. It didn't set out specific injuries like uh, accidental injuries as opposed to occupational injuries. It didn't say that the types of employees covered would only be employees who were traditional railroad employees rather than clerks. But you say that some injuries are covered today which clearly were not covered when it was passed, that it's, it's acquired a different meaning today. Not that it's acquired a different meaning but that some specific injuries are covered today and have been for many years that are different from the types of injuries Congress was thinking about. Is that different from what I said? Are you or are you not saying that some injuries are covered today which were not covered at the time the statute was passed? Uh, no, Your Honor. I'm saying that some injuries today are covered that were not considered by Congress. To say that an injury wasn't covered... So it was covered when it was passed. Congress just didn't know it. Is that it? And the courts didn't know it. Uh, essentially, Your Honor, yes. Con by creating a dynamic remedy, Congress set up a system where Congress itself didn't have to be aware of or know all the things that were going to develop in the future. Congress deliberately chose not to create a statute 
limited to the peculiar hazards of the railroad industry. That was this court's holding in, uh, I believe, Reed versus Pennsylvania Railroad. What the petitioner asks this court to do, however, I guess we can have different notions of causality today, too, right? That uh, uh, are we free to fiddle with that as to what, how proximate the causality has to be? As common law courts, can we change that notion in the FELA as well? I don't think that we can, we can say, uh, that the courts can say as, as common law courts that causation is no longer required. No, but we, the, we can change what causation means. I think that the court could find causation in situations where previously, because, for example, of the lack of medical expertise, the courts were ill-equipped to draw causation. And that's one of the themes that's replete in all these lower court decisions. At the time the FELA was enacted, juries didn't have the benefit of a medical science that had been developed to the point where you could draw, the medical people could draw a causal link or could discern a causal link or a lack of a causal link between emotional injuries and uh, workplace conditions. Juries now have the ability to do that. They have these medical experts who can come in and assist them on this question of causality, which is one of the reasons I think that we don't need these kind of arbitrary hurdles that were enacted at common law as ways to, to weed out problematic cases. Medical science is now the primary method to weed out problematic cases. Mr. May, we reserve the question of whether the FELA covered emotional injury in the Buell case, did we not? Uh, yes, Your Honor. So it, it, it's, it's something that obviously this court feels is, is uh, undecided. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, yes. So the court has not addressed, uh, has reserved that specific issue. Uh, I believe that there's, there is, in the phrasing of the issue, a major difference. The petitioner sees the issue as whether this court should create a whole new duty. The respondents see the issue before the court as whether accepting the pre-existing duty to provide a worker with reasonably safe working conditions, this court should say yes for physical injuries and no for emotional injuries, except under a very limited set of circumstances. Mr. Myers, uh, regardless of how the court comes out on this, is there a state cause of action in addition in a state which would recognize an emotional injury negligence claim? No, Your Honor. This court uh, has held that the FELA is a preemptive statute. For example, a worker could not bring a cause of action under a state negligence statute if he couldn't meet the FELA standard. Similarly, a worker... Even if, even if it's determined that the FELA just doesn't cover it? Uh, to say that the FELA... Uh, yes, the answer is yes. If the FELA does not provide a railroad worker with a cause of action then the preemptive nature of the FELA would have to mean that no state could as well. Have we said as much? Uh, I believe you said as much in the loss of consortium case, and I don't remember the name of it, where it was held that a wife could not bring a state cause of action for loss of consortium where she had no cause of action under the FELA. Uh, the next point I'd like to make has to do with this whole issue of unlimited liability. So to that extent, the FELA was not dynamic if the FELA is limited to the, to the injury to the worker and it doesn't cover derivative injuries to spouses? Yes, Your Honor. In respect of the scope of, of, of the, in respect of the relationship covered by the FELA, the FELA has always been meant to address the relationship between the worker uh, and the employer. 
That's what the FELA uh, is designed to redress. The FELA has not been read by this court or by any others to reach out to someone's wife or someone's child, for example. Um, and this gets me to the to this. Un, this well, I suppose it's sufficiently dynamic. I'm just looking at the statute contains the word widow and husband. I suppose it would be interpreted to be widower and wife of today. Yes, I would. I would think so, Your Honor. Mr. Myers, does the dynamism work both ways? Uh, if there were a trend among common law courts to restrict liability. Uh, beyond what it was, say, restricted in 1908. Would the FELA move with that trend? I don't think so, Your Honor. So it's kind of a ratchet? Uh, oh, it moves one way, yes. Uh, I think how that's true. How can we tell that from the, from the language of the statute? Well, the, from the language... Yes, from the language. Well, the language is, clearly states that any employee injured while he is employed by the railroad has a cause of action so long as a railroad uh, is negligent. Yes, but supposing the common law definition of negligence constricts over a period of years so that what was once thought to be negligent is no longer negligent. The FELA has been, uh, what this court has stated is that the FELA as a federal statute is not bound by state notions of common law. That is, the federal courts that have developed their own federal common law in respect of the statute. Well, then, if that is true, even though let's suppose that the state concepts expand, the federal courts would be free to contract. They're not bound by what's happening in the common law world, I gather. They're not bound by it, Your Honor, but I think in that situation, uh, the remedial purpose of the act would warrant that the federal courts expand with, with uh, the expansion of state common law. I don't understand that. I, I don't understand that either. Well, you start with the premise that the statute is a remedial well, what, statute. What does that mean? Well, what statute isn't a remedial statute? Every statute is designed to remedy something, or presumably Congress wouldn't waste its time fooling around with it. It's meant to be remedial in the sense that it is meant to provide recovery for injured railroad workers. Certainly, it says that in so many words. But what more does that tell us about it? Uh, well, the, uh, the, the language of the statute itself, uh, I think, is not, uh, is not the answer to the question. Then where do we look? I think we should look to this court's prior decisions in Kernan versus American Dredger. Where, where, where did the court in the Kernan case derive its interpretation? If it, did, it didn't look at the statute? Yeah, it did look at the statute, and it found in the statute no basis to exclude certain uh, causes of action and to include certain other causes of action. In other words... The construction of the act, uh, as so far given by this court, uh, as this court is looking to what Congress intended, was that the construction would broaden rather than narrow. And how do we tell the, what Congress intended again? From looking at the language? Not just from looking at the language. From looking at, at committee reports? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, the, 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 the committee reports? The committee reports indicate that a broad range of relief was intended? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the details of the committee report. Actually, the, I guess the best place to start really is the language of the statute, and that's the first place this court has always started in construing the FELA. And when it looks at the FELA and what it has looked at the FELA in the past, it has always found no limitations on the right to recover um, uh, from, from the language of the Act. How about negligence? That's a limitation. Negligence is a limitation, Your Honor, and that's why... There's not going to be a kind of uh, a free-for-all. A person can't just walk into court and say, I don't like my supervisor, I've had a headache, I've lost 40 pounds. 
The FELA does require him to prove negligence. It requires him to prove that his employer failed to exercise due care under the circumstances. Like he had a nagging supervisor. That would do it, right? The employer didn't, didn't replace this supervisor who's a little, he's, he's, he's really too tough. That, that would be enough. That would not be enough. It wouldn't be enough? It would not be enough because it would not satisfy the requirement of negligence. An employee has to come into court ready to prove to a jury that his employer failed to exercise due care, failed to act like a reasonable employer. A reasonable employer wouldn't, wouldn't, have, wouldn't leave in place a supervisor always nagging people. Uh, I, I think quite the contrary. I think quite the contrary, Your Honor. Uh, in working you wouldn't in argue that to a jury? Gee, I'd argue that to a jury. Your Honor, I think that in any working situation we're going to expect, and a jury is going to expect, there will be unpleasantness. Just as there is physical discomfort, there may be some level of emotional discomfort. But basically that level is one for the jury to assess. That one is for the jury to assess, exactly. Based on a case-by-case uh, case basis. But, you know, we're, even if we are developing a common law rule, we are not like other common law courts developing a common law rule for the totality of tort. Rather, for this very specialized area, right? Yes, it, it, It's an area in which you have distinctive types of employers, distinctive types of employees. They're generally not inclined to be the, the shrinking violets who might suffer emotional trauma from a, from a severe boss. I mean, you're talking about rail, railroad workers. It, it's also an area where there are other remedies that are available, such as the Railway Labor Act, which are not available in other... I don't, I don't really don't know what relevance general state tort law has to this, to developing a common law rule for this very specialized area. Uh, I think that Your Honor's point is, is well taken in light of the previous question. The federal statute isn't bound by state common law for those reasons. Um, additionally, the availability of the Railway Labor Act as an alternative mechanism for dispute resolution would tend to minimize uh, these claims where people would come into to court and try to assert a claim that their, their supervisor annoys them or their supervisor upsets them. Is there an analog to that in the Jones Act? Because after all, we do want to keep the, the substantive rules consistent. The Jones Act just picks up on the FELA, so it, to what extent would the, would the RLA qualify FELA in, in a way that the Jones Act then might be different? Your Honor, I do not know if there is an, an analog statute that covers Jones Act employees, so I cannot answer the question uh, directly. Uh, the last area that I'd like to talk about, and just make one observation, which I think is very important. Uh, in his opening to the court, the petitioner admits that the cases that he is asking this court to exclude from the statute involve genuine and foreseeable and severe injuries. Uh, which, which uh, contradicts, I think, to a certain extent, his argument that allowing recovery under these cases is going to result in a flood of trivial lawsuits. We're not talking... Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Myers. Mr. Farrell, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I will frame the issue just a little bit differently because I think the issue that this court is presented with here is whether Conrail's distrust of the twin pillars of the American justice system, that is the jury and the adversarial system, should persuade this court to ignore the text of the FLA and the broad remedial purposes as, as the commitments of this court over almost the last century have revealed to ignore genuine, severe, and foreseeable injury resulting from the negligence of the railroad. Let me, because of the position that I stand in, address some questions. 
First, petitioner said that there was no duty in 1908 to avoid emotional injury at common law. That's incorrect. And he ignores the case of Dilyu versus White and Son, which is actually a King's Bench case in 1901. I apologize, I did not cite it, and I can provide by letter the cite. It was 13 years... The that there is a common law point of reference, isn't it American common law that Congress was presumably interested in? Yes, Your Honor, I believe that is correct. However, as, as, as I think that we as common law lawyers uh, approaching common law, I believe the common law would embody both, and, and I'll, I'll get to your question in a little different way, in contrasting what happened. Common law is not, the, the use the home, it's not the brooding omnipresence, it's the law of a bunch of specific states, isn't it? Absolutely, let me go right to, to, your, to answer your question, and that's Spade versus Lynn and Massachusetts Railroad, which was the, which was the American case that was specifically addressed by just Judge Kennedy, uh, excuse me, of the King's Bench in Dilyu, in which in Spade versus, uh, versus Lynn and Massachusetts Railroad, they recognized that there was a duty to exercise reasonable care to avoid emotional injury. But the court said in Spade, we have a problem of the administration of these claims. The same argument that Conroy is making here. We have a difficulty of proof. And what the resolution of the issue before this court is, is really a matter of proof. In the Carlisle case, we marshaled a trial and the jury decided that Conrail ignored the 1929 studies that revealed the dangerous medical consequences, bodily consequences, that, that occurred as a result of unreasonable stress on the job without visual assistance. They ignored the 1974 report of the FRA, which confirmed those results. They ignored the 1987 assessment of the very office that found the conditions there hazardous, that found the staff inadequate, that found the work excessive, that found that there was no visual assistance whatsoever to assist train dispatchers who were making moment-to-moment -moment decisions that could involve wholesale catastrophe. And that leaves me... That's a workman's compensation case, but why should it be a negligence case? Great question, because that brings me over to Justice O'Connor, who I think asked a question, isn't there another remedy here? No, Your Honor. Uh, the remedy that, that, in fact, uh, the petitioner is arguing for before this court is to exclude an entire class of employees, an entire class of injuries, from any remedy whatsoever. And I might point out that they absolutely mistake the law with respect to workman's compensation in the United States. The law of workman's compensation in the United States, every other worker in any other industry would have recovery for an emotional injury which was foreseeable and was an essential consequence of their type of job. But let's talk a little bit about the zone of danger that I think... I was going to ask that question. You're, you're, uh, I, I guess you're, there, there's just a conflict on that because, uh, as, as I recall uh, uh, the petitioner's brief, uh, the assertions made that, uh, that emotional injury is generally not recoverable. Judge, I, I believe I've cited... Gordon versus, uh, uh, I forget the defendant's name, in New Jersey case, which essentially holds that if, in fact, the emotional injury uh, is causally related to an essential, essential aspect of that employee's work, that emotional injury is fully compensable. But in, Hammer, all, in all events, counsel, workman's compensation statutes are not based on negligence, and it's, it seems to me uh, to undercut your case. That's if why... What you're saying is that this statute must somehow be uh, construed so that negligence in this statute is parallel to workman's compensation standards for recovery in the states. Judge, uh, Justice, let me please uh, uh, comment on that, because actually if you look at the law of workman's compensation in this area, for instance the case of Hammerley, um, uh, which is the Pennsylvania workman's compensation that recognizes the compensability of emotional injury, the test is, was the emotional illness a reasonable reaction to an abnormal working 
circumstance, which actually, it, it is the, the only workman's compensation type of case uh, in Pennsylvania that actually requires proof of fault, uh, proof of showing that the condition was abnormal. So um, uh, it's very interesting in this area that in, in the emotional recovery area in workman's comp, the test does include um, the reasonable person test, which is a negligence concept. And that is, this is not uh, a, a subjective reaction, it is an objective test in workman's compensation. So I, I come, I cite the issue with some hesitancy because of the knee-jerk reaction of railroads generally to the mention of workman's compensation. But I mention it because of Justice O'Connor's question so that this court understands that what Conway is really arguing here is that our entire class of genuine, foreseeable, Real and severe injuries go completely uncompensated in the face of the clear language of the statute in 1908 that every injury suffered uh, at the hands of the negligence of the railroad in whole or in part should be in fact compensated. So there's a couple of other points that I want to make as a matter of proof. This court has recently addressed the issue and actually reaffirmed its faith and its confidence in the American adversary system and in the jury in the case of Daubert uh, and also in the case of, uh, of Harris. Uh, but we trust all of that, but, but, but why isn't... You're arguing to us policy questions, whether there's too much risk of, of, uh, of runaway awards, whether the employer is going to be uh, excessively burdened in trying to keep a happy workplace. Uh, all of these policy questions are the kinds of things that Congress usually resolves in, in this federal system. We don't resolve them. We have a statute that hasn't covered this stuff in the past. If Congress wants it to cover it, why can't Congress amend it to cover it? If I might return to the initial discussion that I had about the Do-You case, uh, Judge, I, Justice, I believe that it was, it was in fact a duty that existed at common law that at the time of the Spade versus Lincoln Massachusetts decision, there were these concerns about the administration, that is, fraudulent claims uh, and unforeseeable liability, or excuse me, potential liability, caused the court to adopt certain crutches that in fact were really examples of meritorious cases. We have now developed medical science to such a point, and the adversarial system allows the medical science, com the competing medical views of the causation, of the seriousness of an emotional injury um, uh, under the reasonable man standard, to compete in the marketplace of the courtroom and to allow the jury with proper instructions to decide um, what in fact Spade versus Wynn kind of throw up its hands and say, we'll use these crutches, the physical impact doctor. Let me also make a I point. I don't think that. I, I think that injury just used to mean physical injury. In, in some contexts, it still does. If, if, if you're filling out an insurance form, they say, were there any, any injuries? Well, in the you know, Were there any injuries from the, uh, from the automobile accident? Uh, well, yeah, my, yes, my, 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 my wife in the seat next to me was, was really scared when we hit. I wouldn't say, yes, that, that was an injury. It, it isn't an injury. Uh, it means physical injury something that's, that's physically demonstrable. Let me, let me make a point under the restatement. I think it was a point that actually Justice Ginsburg kind of hinted at, and that is that frankly under the restatement, specifically 313, if in fact a reasonable person would foresee that their conduct would result in emotional distress that would result in bodily harm, that that is injury. Our position, the position of the respondents in this case, is that 
injury, as used in the statute, means both mental and physical injury. And frankly, as this court said in Urey, there is nothing in the statute that would indicate an intention to exclude any class of injuries or class of employees, uh, and, and any attempt to read in such a limitation would be, quote, fear inference. Uh, and, and, Your Honor, I think one of the other points that I want to make with respect to uh, the, the, the issue uh, of... Well, before you go on to the other point, isn't it the case that your opponents on the other side are not asking us to read out the entire class of injuries? They are simply saying, do not provide for compensation for those injuries until certain other conditions have been met, the conditions that are summarized by a zone of danger or whatever test might be used. They're not asking this court or any federal court to read emotional injury totally out of the statute. Let me address that. And, and if, if it is not read, I guess the question should be if it's not read totally out of the statute, then how, even on your premise, can we say that we, in effect, are defying the intention of Congress? Your Honor, the problem with the zone of danger test, and I think it was a question that, that Justice Kennedy asked, is that it is so fortuitous. If, in fact, Mr. Gottschall uh, well, maybe, maybe it's a bad test, but that wasn't my question. My question is, if in fact we're not reading the entire class of emotional injuries out of the realm of compensation under this statute, how can it be said that we are defying the intention of Congress to include all injuries? I don't believe that we can. I think the answer is that, 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 that Your Honors, obviously, I believe, are, are here. And I, I would, with respect to Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist's question, I believe, theoretically, um, that, that this remedy is a dynamic remedy. And this court, um, consistent with guidance from the common law um, or medical science, could contract the remedy as well as, this, uh, as expand it. However, and consistent with medical science as well as the development of common law and common law courts all across this country, uh, with respect to recovery for emotional injury, it has been expanding with respect to the ability to identify, to measure, to scientifically present uh, and defend the existence of real emotional injury. It has expanded. So, Your Honor, I, I, I believe he's not writing it out of the statute. I think uh, Justice Scalia property. He's picking the test, which is the most, uh, the broadest test, which allows him to win in both of these cases. But it is completely fortuitous. Um, it is over-inclusive and under-inclusive at the same time. Just as a physical impact test, if, if you remember Roscoe Pound, 75 years ago, made the very same point, that it's absolutely fortuitous. Um, if, if, there's a, if there's a jostling in a case in Pennsylvania, Zelensky, uh, an automobile passenger in an absolute bump in a parking lot, who is jostled, is then able to collect for, uh, for a full range of emotional injury because of the, the magical coincidence of the cars having touched. Um, and there, there are, are a myriad of examples, Justice Kennedy using it in the Gotcha case, if in fact Mr. Gotcha had fallen on the way to help, then there would have been a contemporaneous physical injury and magically um, he would have fallen within the test. I have to, as, because I represent Alan Cole, I'll make another point. The Congressional History, the House of Representatives, with respect to the Border Inspection Act, also indicated that their intention was not only um, to protect and place the human overhead that the railroad consumed in its wake uh, on its employees on the railroad. It also indicated that a purpose was to protect us, the public. And this is where Alan Carlyle comes in. Because Alan Carlyle is in the operations aspect of a dynamic transportation injury, uh, industry. The movement of hazardous materials that involve catastrophe that would in fact compromise entire communities. My client's stress was not fear from himself. 
my client's stress was fear for whole communities, that he was being asked to make moment-to-moment decisions about catastrophe with inadequate, outdated uh, equipment, which was proven by a government study of the exact office and the exact defendant at the very same time, which they ignored. Are we, as a court, to ignore the stress and inevitable bodily consequences on an employee in the air traffic controllers? That's the analogous... In uh, the analogous position that my client would be in if he was in the airline industry. They work 20 minutes and then, and then take a break. My client worked 15 and 16 hours a day, 16 days in a row, under abusive supervisors with no visual assistance, uh, and his concerns were that he was going to kill somebody. Not only that he was going to kill somebody, but that he was going to see his face on the front page, not of the Philadelphia Daily News, but of the London Times, because his, 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 his mistake could compromise an entire community because of the hazardous material. Let me move just a second to my closing remarks. <clears throat> we cannot use 18th and 19th century crutches, such as the physical impact rule, to resolve 20th and 21st century workplace problems. In Dorbert, this court said, and it's actually the test in the Third Circuit, that the scientific validity of the medical evidence in emotional distress cases, the gatekeeping function, of, of, the, of the federal court judges can in fact identify the reliability of that validity and if in fact it meets that test then those, that expert testimony which in both these cases the injuries are supported with substantiated by medical expert testimony in my case liability that is that a reasonable person under the same circumstances normally constituted would have suffered the same or similar injuries by Dr. Paul Rausch who is in fact a consultant for the Center for uh, Disease Control in Atlanta found was the expert on liability in, in the Carlisle case. I am asking this court to affirm the decisions below and affirm our confidence and our commitment and reject and not be counseled by the fears that Kanye would like to, in fact, uh, share with us and affirm our belief in the working ability of American Jews and of the adversary system to find the truth and to compensate the meritorious case, which was in fact both the text and the legislative history. Thank you very much. Your time has expired. Uh, Mr. Wellington, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. This is indeed a federal statute that we are interpreting, and it is not tied irrevocably or immutably to the common law. We have not suggested that. What we must keep in mind is that the common law, however, has, does give us the experience of dealing with these claims over several decades. And under no common law test would Mr. Gottschall or Mr. Carlisle recover. And, and the, the Third Circuit, recognizing that through its analysis, did away with those prongs all on the basic justification that the, third, that the FELA is a broad remedial statute. But that does not answer the question, of, it is not a justification for doing away with that experience. Nor is it enough to say, well, we'll send everything to the jury. We have no quarrel at all with the jury system and its importance in FELA cases. But this court, over its, over its decades, has reviewed a number of cases and determined some had appropriate evidence to go to a jury and some did not. Courts still do that. The question is not, let everything go to a jury, they'll solve it. The question is, is this a duty that employ- railroad employers now have to protect their employees from um, Can I ask about the language of the statute? You, as I understand, you've conceded there are injuries in this case within the meaning of the statute. Yes, Your Honor. But your position is there was no negligence within the meaning of the statute. Yes, Your Honor. Because there was no violation of a particular duty to these two employees. Yes, Your Honor. I want to be sure. 
And, and on that point, it, it seems to me that the duty that is being argued is the duty of the employer not to avoid stress, but to use necessary due care to avoid unnecessary stress. That's the duty that's being argued for, I take it. We, we, we believe the duty under the FALA is to avoid physical impact or reasonable threat of a physical impact. I'm talking about what they, they are arguing, that there's a, a, a duty for the employer to use due care. Due care. Yes, that's, and even under a workers' compensation analysis that was brought up, um, that uh, people are able to recover for workers' compensation claims in different standards in different states, but essentially, if there's abnormal stress and they can show it's related to the workplace, that really fundamentally is where the Third Circuit comes. By eliminating any other limit of duty, it equates to foreseeability with duty. And someone who has emotional distress and it was clearly foreseeable from the workplace is now a damaged plaintiff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Wellington. The case is submitted.